Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Element. I want you to commit to trying this experiment for me. What is it? Most people in my world right now are training in the morning. And one of the things that I know about their behaviors is they've gone the whole night, haven't eaten anything, have gone the whole morning, and maybe they've had some coffee. What you have not had is any likely, water. Likely they've well, had coffee. Likely. <laughs> you haven't had any water and you haven't had any electrolytes. And what's happening is you're going pretty hard. It doesn't matter if you're in a fasted state. That's all I'm talking about. But we're not viewing hydration and electrolyte supplementation, getting enough salts. And we're not viewing that as a potential limiter to your wattage, your poundage, your output. I want you to get up in the morning, have your coffee, but then have an element before you train and watch how it transforms your training. Are you saying that just that single cup of coffee I usually have before I work out isn't quite enough? I would say you are saltless in Seattle. I really do think that sometimes because it's not a fuel option or we think it's fuel related, we fail to appreciate that we are a complex bioelectrical system driven on salt and you will perform better and and feel better, just mental clarity if you get put some salts aboard. So don't mess around. Take this challenge, do it a few days in a row and prove me wrong. We literally drink Element every day. Right now, if you order through our link, you get a free sample pack with all of Element's flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Sleep Me. There's a couple of things I want to talk about that have happened with my Doc Pro recently. I got some weird spring bug just a few weeks ago. I got into bed. You were traveling with the girls and I was running a fever. I remember this. And I turned that thing way down and I was like, oh, this is the best fever I ever had. Then I started to get the chills later on and I just jacked it right up to like 110. I was like, this is fine. I can basically keep ping-ponging my bed back and forth to meet my... It's like fever be gone. Fever be gone. Demons out. (laughs) So one of the things that we're starting to see is that our house typically runs a little colder, starting to get warm. And I'm noticing that I'm starting to turn my Doc Pro down, which is what I want to make sure that we're highlighting today. This device allows you to sort of meet your physiologic needs, meet your environmental needs based on what's going on, based on what's going on in your environment. You can make your bed the perfect temperature every night. And it really is an essential part of our sleep universe. Head over to sleep.me slash TRS to learn more and save on the purchase of any new Cube or Doc Pro sleep system. So go to sleep.me slash TRS to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed like we do every day. Proof. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are delighted to welcome Lindsay Barra. Lindsay is a freelance sports journalist based in New Jersey. She's the oldest grandchild of Carmen and Baseball Hall of Famer Yogi Berra and serves as an executive producer of the brand new documentary, It Ain't Over, an intimate and revealing portrait of Yogi Berra. She currently creates content from Mustard, the pitching biomechanics app developed by Tom House, and contributes regularly to Men's Health Magazine. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Fast Company, and the Sports Business Journal. Lindsay has also hosted the sports and nutrition training podcast, Food of the Gods, been a national correspondent for the MLB, and a writer for ESPN Magazine. Some of you may recognize Lindsay because she was a journalist 
and became very interested in our take on ice for over the past 10 years and the lack of sort of use. That's one of the ways we've had Lindsay in and around our world through CrossFit, through journalism, through baseball for a long time. It's really fun to see her flex her considerable skills and expand that into this movie. Yeah, you know, I think it was just a month ago or something, we just happened to be scrolling on the preview app on Apple iTunes, and we found the preview for her upcoming documentary, Innate Over. And I think you and I were totally blown away because, of course, we'd known that she was Yogi Berra's granddaughter, but I don't think we really knew a bunch about the story. And we were just so excited to have her on, be able to talk about the documentary and hear more about how rad her grandpa was and just learn more about the process. Lindsay is an incredible athlete. UNC varsity athlete, a lineage of really just incredible movers. It's fun to see and listen to her in this podcast, her take on her grandfather's process, you know, through the lens of a journalist, a baseball lover and granddaughter athlete, right? So it's fun to get this take. I think you're going to really like this conversation. Uh, It's a little bit of behind the scenes on underappreciated American icon. Enjoy. Lindsay, welcome to the Ready State podcast. Hi, guys. How's it going? So I'm just going to kick it off by saying that we've known each other for a long time. And I don't know if you had met Kelly previously, but you and I just recently met for the first time in New York, although we've talked to each other 25,000 times before that. Lindsay's been to our gym many times. And anyway, but you and Kelly had a conversation, obviously, at the event we were at about knives, and he went on to send you a knife. And what's the deal? Why were you guys talking about knives? And why did he send you a knife? My brother asked me how we got on the topic of knives, and I don't remember how it actually came up. (laughs) I think maybe somebody mentioned something about collecting something, and everyone's obsessed with something, and Kelly said he was obsessed with knives. And I said, I've only ever owned one knife my whole life. My brother got it for me as a gift like when I was in college, and it was always in my hiking backpack. It was a really cool, small buck knife that I, as not a knife person, was not afraid of killing myself with. And we went to, my boyfriend and I were hiking in Montana this summer. And when we came to fly home, I had forgotten to take it out of my backpack. And they took it from me at the airport. And I kind of pitched a fit. And I was like, you can't throw that away. And they were like, oh, we're going to donate it to the Boy Scouts, which sort of made me feel a little bit better. But I had lost this knife that I had for 20 some odd years. And I told Kelly the story. And then the other day I got this package in the mail with this absolutely beautiful made in the Alps pocket knife. That's like the perfect size for a knife wimp like myself. And it's so pretty. Like, I don't even want to use it to cut things because I don't want to make it not pretty. Well, I get it now because Kelly, as you, I think alluded to is obsessed with knives. And what I now know is that you opened the door for him to both talk about knives and shop for knives, which is his favorite pastime. We actually went through this phase. He was like, he went through like a deep <laughs> knife phase where I think for like a month straight, once a day, we would get this little teeny Amazon box, probably similar to the one you just got. And I was like, another knife? And then the next day I'd be like, and another knife? And then I think he did kind of reach peak knife. He actually ended up having to buy this like block that he keeps in his bathroom where he stores all of his knives. And I think he did sort of reach peak knife at some point. And now you think I reach he peak loves knife? to gift oh. a knife to people. Why do you keep your knives in your bathroom? That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Even Lisa. It is kind of weird. Look, uh, it's me, a little weird. Hang on, hang on. I feel attacked. Are you feel you're feeling vulnerable? <laughs> Smart women are surrounding me on every attacked. side. You have a whole block of knives. Don't worry about it. So at home in my bathroom. So when I was a, I don't know why I love knives, but when I was a kid in Germany, I just moved to Germany. And at one point, I think it's the second grade, 
And I literally had 13 knives hidden throughout my bedroom, just in case like someone broke in and I was like, I'll take it this knife out behind this picture frame. Keep in mind that he spent most of his childhood in Garmisch, Germany, which is like completely idyllic and this small little village. And like the chances of him being attacked in his bedroom in Garmisch, Germany were, I mean, I'll say almost zero. I feel vindicated though. We read this article a long time ago about children and how we have made children just way too safe that these kids in Peru, by the time they were five, could go into the forest, hunt, kill an animal, skin it, and cook it and prepare it for their family. And I was like, see, when I was in Nepal as a, as a young person many years ago, every kid on the beach, like these little tiny children had these gigantic sabers. And so it just seems I'm just going trying to spread that dogma around. Well, one last knife story before we talk about real things. Kelly had some kind of knife in one of our backpacks and our daughter, Georgia, used that backpack as a carry-on when she was like seven or eight years old. And I will say the knife actually made it through security at SFO, but then we got to Heathrow and we had to go through security again. And, you know, she was like a little kid and gets pulled out of line and was super stressed. (laughs) And it turns out it's like just one of Kelly's knives at the bottom of one of our day packs. And so, yeah, we had to give that to the, the British Boy Scouts or whatever. We lost that one as well. So just everyone knows, the knife Lindsay's talking about is an open L. It's this cool, classic knife with a rotating lock. It probably hasn't evolved in 300 years. It is a simple, beautiful, like if it was Indiana Jones and you chose this knife, the guy would say, you chose wisely. Like this is the, a real person's knife. And it's not flashy. It's not carbon fiber. It's not Damascus steel. This is a, a person's knife. You pull this out, any knife, appreciate in the world to be like, mm, she's legit. She's even more legit than we're about to talk about. So let's get into it. Wait, I have one more. I oh, have God. one more non sequitur before we start. And again, there's a lot to talk to you about both in your own professional life and this cool project you're working on. But I saw you had an Instagram post today where your life revolves around both having sunglasses and reading glasses. Yes. And I just wish you and I lived closer because obviously we're the same person. But what's the solve for this? You know, now that we're old, and we all have sunglasses and reading glasses. Is it just to ditch sunglasses? Because, you know, as Kelly says, and Laird also is anti-sunglasses. Is it to ditch sunglasses and just only have sunglasses reading glasses? For weakness. Or do you just give up and get like a chain and hang your reading glasses off of a chain and then look 175 years old? My mother suggested the chain today. <laughs> I was like, mom, I'm not doing that. But the bigger problem is when you have the sunglasses on the head, and then the reading glasses on your face, right? Then you get done with the reading glasses and you put them on your head. But then you have two pairs of glasses on your head and then you inevitably grab the wrong one when you go to put the other ones back on your face. It's And I'm new to the whole glasses thing. I only really started needing reading glasses during COVID and I blame Zoom calls and whatnot. So I have no idea what the fix is. So anyone wants to share with me, I just look like a moron with glasses all over my body. <laughs> yeah. If anyone can help us. We call it peppering the environment. There are 300 reading glasses everywhere. Even Lisa's nodding her head. Yes. I have got stashed. I have glasses special. It just, it's In just like better. In every drawer of our house, there's a pair of reading glasses. Otherwise. Somewhere. Do you have more reading glasses or more knives? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a close. It's close at this point. <laughs> it's really fun to be on the other side of the pointy spear talking to you. You have interviewed me many times for various projects. I wasn't aware. We're going to talk about the real reason we're here because it's so cool. 
obviously you're you've been a part of our lives. You're a journalist. You're an athlete. You've been educating people. You're part of the reason half of the world doesn't ice injuries anymore. But I was flipping through the channels. I love watching previews. And I was like, wait a minute. There's a preview about this baseball player named Yogi Berra. And it's like, I know a friend who happens to be connected to Yogi Berra. I watched the preview and lo and behold, it's your movie. Even before I even saw you talking about the movie, promoting the movie. So that's the setup for why we're here today is the launch of this incredible project about your family. And I'm so thrilled to get into it. I am really excited to be here and talk about it because I can't wait for everybody to see this thing. (laughs) So I am a linear person. And so I would like to skip I would like to go backwards in time, though, so we can just let our listeners learn a little bit about who you are. I know that you have an athletic background. You've been a journalist. You've been doing a lot of cool things. But, you know, maybe you can start a little bit with what your athletic background is, because I can tell you that I can tell the listeners that you still are very athletic and jacked. And let's just start there. And then I'd love to talk a little bit about your journalism career. So I grew up with my grandpa Yogi as my grandpa and my mother's father, who was also a World War II vet and really into basketball and football. And we just did all the sports growing up. Like there was no option to sit inside and like play a video game. My mom wouldn't let us in the house until the streetlights came on. That was like a rule. You had to be outside (laughs) and play. And if the streetlights are not on, I don't care if you're bleeding, don't bother coming back. Well, according to Huberman, you need that evening light. So your mom was the original Huberman. I think that is... Yes, yeah. genius, right? Yeah. Did you catch the sun gazing? All right, come back inside. Yeah, we, we like to call that a 1970s summer, which we really appreciate. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Which I wish I could go back to. So nice. Anyway, I played soccer, ice hockey, softball, basketball, like all the things growing up. And I played, I settled kind of on soccer, hockey and softball. I was the captain of the boys hockey team in high school. And I ended up playing men's club hockey and varsity softball at the University of North Carolina. And then after college, when I started working for ESPN Magazine, I needed to just like cut down on the time I stood like standing in the outfield, like playing softball games, because it just wasn't an efficient workout, right? So I got into triathlons and then I got into CrossFit. So I've been doing CrossFit for a number of years, competed a little bit with that, did a bunch of triathlons. And now I'm like a hiker and a golfer and a CrossFitter and a cyclist and, you know, just do enough things to keep myself moving at my steadily advancing age, just like the rest of us. But uh, how I met Kelly, I can talk about that too. I was working at ESPN Magazine for a number of years and I was freelancing on the side, doing a lot of stuff for the Box Magazine. And I think the first time I interviewed Kelly was for a story on Annie Thor's daughter that ended up being on the cover of the Box Magazine. And when I was traveling a lot for ESPN and for later for MLB.com and MLB Network, Whenever I was in San Francisco, I would drop in and work out at San Francisco CrossFit. So I got to uh, work out at the gym and meet Kelly and and meet some other cool athletes who were out there. And yeah, that's the background. Could I just ask why you were on the men's hockey team at UNC? Because there wasn't a girls hockey team. And if you wanted to play, you played with the men. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure if that was, if there just wasn't a team or if you had opted to. How crazy is that? That's not that long ago. We also I'm assuming they have like, a women's hockey team now? Nope, I don't think okay. so. Also bananas is that UNC has some of the densest women's sports in the planet. Anson Dorrance, the strength coach or the head soccer coach there, is one of yes. the winningest coaches in the history of all sports, men or women. And I yes. think last year, 
brand new field hockey coach came on. She's like 23 and won yeah. the national title. Like UNC is yes. legit. UNC's field hockey program is fantastic. Karen Shelton, the yeah. previous coach, was there for forever and won so many championships. That that program is tremendous. That's amazing. Okay, so you are an athlete in a family that <laughs> is sort of tangentially known for athletics. You know, I would say that your grandfather is probably, for me, one of the most famous athletes in the world I've ever, ever heard ever. of. I quote him regularly without attribution. What's it like to grow up with Yogi Berra as your grandfather? Because we'll get into the premise of this movie is that people see him as a person, as an icon, and they don't even recognize what an incredible athlete he was and how progressive he was in sports in terms of changing sports. Can you talk about sort of your grandpa first and growing up with that icon in the family, the pressure, and then kind of work your way into what did we get wrong about this human being? So I say this a lot. When I was a kid, I had no idea that my grandfather was Yogi Berra. Like I knew he was Grandpa Yogi and I knew that his job was managing the New York Yankees or coaching the New York Yankees, depending on when it was. And I didn't really know it was any different than like, my other friends' grandpas who were accountants or bus drivers or who owned a restaurant or whatever. Like, this is just what grandpa did for a living. And I didn't know that it was special. And by the time I was old enough to realize that Grandpa Yogi was also this famous guy called Yogi Berra that people were all, you know, idolized and had been watching play for a long time, he'd already been Grandpa Yogi for so long that Yogi Berra and Grandpa Yogi didn't often like overlap or shake hands in my mind. Even now, I still feel like they're two very separate entities, which is strange because what I got from him as my grandpa is basically what everybody else got from him in the world. He was not two people. What you saw was what you got. There were no errors. He didn't like put on an act for anyone he met in public. He was just very much himself all the time. And he didn't think of himself as a famous person at all. I mean, he went to church Saturday night or Sunday morning every weekend for his entire life, sat in the same pew. You know, anybody could go and sit next to him. He picked up his own dry cleaning, did his own grocery shopping, went to restaurants, like was just would sit in the stands at my hockey games and chat up the other moms and dads and grandparents who came to watch their kids play. He just was so normal. And that, I think, is one of the things that made him so beloved because he was so accessible and so approachable and just so nice to all the people that he met. And I think that personality of his, you know, the way he was so approachable made him a great pitch man for products, which led to all of the commercials that he did. And then there were the yogiisms on top of that. And I think he became, in people's minds, this cute, sweet funny man that said funny things and the athletic background sort of fell by the wayside, you know, cause he stopped playing. He played his last game on May 10th, 1965. And he was still doing commercials until like 2008, you know, 50 some odd years later. Crazy. So 18 years of playing and then 50 years of being on TV. I don't think it's surprising that people remember him for that latter part of his life, but it's also kind of a bummer that they forget what made him famous enough to be in commercials in the first place, you know? Yeah. And I mean, maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about that, like from a data standpoint, because obviously sure. I've heard of Yogi Berra. 
I know he's a legend. Actually, in for me, I only think of him, you know, even separate from knowing you, I only think of him as an athlete. I actually don't think until I, I even watched the trailer for this documentary and have talked to Kelly a little bit a bit more recently, you know, how prolific he was in terms of, you know, being a spokesperson for products and, and, you know, in other aspects of his life, but like, give us a little bit, you know, because I imagine many people listening to this have the same feeling. They know Yogi Bear is a legend, but like, give us some data points, like what made him a legend as an athlete. Tee up that first scene in the movie for us. Yes. Okay. Let me give you some of the stats first though. So like he was a three-time MVP award winner in baseball. There's not that many folks who won three MVP awards, and there are fewer still who won back-to-back MVP awards, which Grandpa did. He is a 10-time World Series champion, which is more than any other player in the history of baseball. 10 times. He played in 18 (laughs) All-Star games. Yeah, he had 10 World Series rings. So I tell the kids who come to Grandpa's museum here in New Jersey that you can't wear 10 rings all at once because it's very tacky. (laughs) But uh, some of the stats are really just incredible. He and Joe DiMaggio, who obviously another very famous Yankee, are the only two players in Major League Baseball history to have more than 350 home runs and fewer than 500 strikeouts. And not a lot of people put Grandpa in the same breath as Joe DiMaggio, but right there, like that's the two of them at the top of all of baseball history. There's some stats that I really, really love. In 1950, Grandpa, in 656 plate appearances and 597 at-bats, he hit 322, had 144 RBIs, 28 home runs and only struck out 12 times in an entire season. Guys today strike out 12 times in a weekend, right? (laughs) He was super durable. He caught both ends of double headers, 18 innings, 117 times in his career. I physical challenge any catcher at any level of baseball to catch just one complete double header right now. You won't see it happen. And I find that amazing with all of the advancements in, uh, you know, strength and conditioning. And they talk about how, you know, the game isn't the same because the players are so much bigger and stronger and faster. And I'm like, okay, well then why can't they do what the guys did back then? Right. (laughs) I would love to hear your opinions on that, Kel. He caught over 125 games, you know, for over a decade. He would tell you that it was because he was short. He was five, eight and that he was low to the ground and he didn't have to squat very far, but a squat's a squat. Come on. Yeah. He still has records for, you know, world series appearances, world series hits by a catcher. He has 1,430 RBIs, which is the most ever by a catcher. And that is a record that I can guarantee you will never be broken. So the stats are really, really incredible. And in the first scene of the movie, as Juliet alluded to, I was sitting with him watching the 2015 All-Star Game. And this was just a few months before he passed. And he kind of had dementia and like wasn't doing awesome. And they bring out Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Johnny Bench, and Sandy Koufax at the All-Star Game, pregame, as the four greatest living baseball players. And they're all fantastic. I think Willie Mays was the greatest player to ever play the game. But I'm looking at my Grandpa Yogi, and Johnny Bench is also a catcher, and Johnny Bench is a great catcher, but Grandpa has numbers that are equal to, and in a lot of cases in certain areas, better than Johnny's. And I just looked at Grandpa, and I was like, are you dead? Why aren't you included in this group? Why isn't it the five greatest living players? I, I'm not thinking he should replace anyone, but he certainly should be included in that group. Yeah, he should be standing there for sure. Yeah. And when I said, are you dead? He just said, not yet, in classic Grandpa Yogi fashion. 
But I think he's overlooked a lot. And I mentioned that 1,430 RBI stat just last spring, Yadier Molina from the St. Louis Cardinals got his thousandth RBI as a catcher. And I remember scrolling through Twitter and seeing the news story about that. And I love Yadier Molina. I wrote a cover story on him when I was at ESPN Magazine, and he was actually one of Grandpa Yogi's favorite active baseball players. Grandpa grew up in St. Louis and was still a pretty big Cardinals fan and watched a lot of Cardinals games, even though he was a lifelong Yankee. So he loved Yachty as well. And I click on the story about Yachty and it says Yachty joins elite company. And it's a composite image at the top of the article of Pudge Rodriguez, Johnny Bench and Yadier. And I'm like, again, wait a second. These guys all have a thousand RBIs, but grandpa has the record 1,430. And he was literally not in the picture when they're talking about the catchers who have achieved this great milestone. And my whole goal for the movie is to figuratively put him back in that picture because he belongs in the conversation as the greatest catcher of all time. He belongs in the conversation as the greatest to play the game. He deserves that. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by Momentus. One of the 10 vital signs that you and I have is fueling for life. And one of the things that I struggle with always, like every day. Getting enough protein. Oh, how'd you know? <laughs> I don't have a hard time eating fruits and vegetables or moving or having hip extension, but getting my protein minimums, I actually struggle to do it. And one of the ways I'm pretty detailed about getting a real whole food protein, but one of the ways that has changed my life fundamentally is I augment a little bit with protein shakes. And I'll tell you, I gave that habit up because most of the protein shakes didn't make me feel very good. Momentus adds digestive enzymes into their German-fed, grass-fed whey cows, and I feel better. It's amazing. And it also tastes oh, stop really it. good. Stop it. And the other thing I'll add is we've been doing a lot of traveling for work lately, and Momentus protein powder comes in these rad little individual serving packages. What do you mean you're not smuggling your like yeah, not little ba- like little baggies of protein TSA. Yeah, or putting it in a Ziploc bag? And so we've been able to really keep up with our protein minimums while we've been traveling, and that's been essential for just feeling good. And let me be honest, the ultimate test of any protein is can you mix it in like a plastic cup at a hotel with tepid tap water. And, and still be able to drink it. Yes, you can. That's how good Momentous <laughs> Protein is. I'm telling you, this way has rounded out. I'm hitting my ma- my minimums and super tasty and portable. Go to thereadystate.com slash Momentous and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. So there's so much there and that's amazing mm-hmm. to hear all that. And... Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to go back to only because this has been a conversation we have been having at length lately because of our book Built to Move is this idea of durability. And you mentioned the word durability. And of course, my brain was like durability. And, you know, ultimately, that's our goal. We, I think, have talked to you about we don't care about the word longevity. We don't care how long we live. We just want to be durable in our bodies as long as we're alive. What do you think made him so durable and so functional? And if I'm not mistaken, he was a World War II veteran as well. Yes. So I feel like just going through that experience has to make you a resilient and durable human on many levels that none of us can relate to these days. But what do you think it was? like? Do you and they made was- a movie about another Zamparelli, right? Who's the runner of World War II and then came back. You know what I mean? Like it's bananas that your grandfather was so durable and had such an incredible career and had a career life before this thing. 
Yeah. So what do you think? I mean, have you spent time trying to figure out like, what was it? I'm sure some of it's genetics. I'm sure some of it is the resilience he learned by being in a war. I mean, there's probably so many factors, but what do you think it is? Like, what do you think made him so durable? I think World War II gives you something that, you know, it's not something that people today really understand. And I'm not going to pretend that I understand it because I have not been in a war and certainly have not seen live combat the way grandpa did. He was at Normandy, right? He was on on the D-Day invasion. He was on an LCSS, landing craft support small, which came off a larger boat, the USS Bayfield. The boat had 12 rockets and two 50 caliber machine guns on the back. And he was a machine gunner providing cover fire for our troops going ashore at Omaha Beach. And that was obviously the active part of the invasion. But then in the days following D-Day, his job with the other six fellas on his boat was to remove the bloated bodies of American servicemen from the ocean and bring them back to the USS Bayfield. So you don't go through an active combat situation, really risking your life, and then follow it up by removing the dead bodies of your comrades from the water and come away with it without this incredible sense of perspective, right? So grandpa comes home and he full well knows that so many other men did not. And I feel like he understands this second chance at life that he's been given. We talk today a lot about practicing gratitude. And I don't think grandpa had to think about practicing gratitude. I think that every moment of his life, he was grateful for just being here, right? Never mind getting to become, you know, a Hall of Famer or whatever. He got the chance to meet my grandmother and get married and have kids. And he ends up playing this boy's game for a living. And the only way you can look at that after World War II is with such a profound sense of joy all the time. And you can see it when you see the archival footage in the movie. Every time they strike somebody out, Grandpa jumps out of his crouch and leaps into the air. He's just so thrilled with the whole situation. And I think that that perspective, like I know we're talking a little bit about durability here, but like he was also known as one of the greatest clutch hitters of all time. He was was tremendous in the late innings. When you get up in the bottom of the ninth with two outs and people put so much pressure on themselves, he'd been through an actual life and death situation. The bottom of the ninth is not life or death. He is happy to be there and he looks at that as opportunity. That's not pressure, right? But I think when you have that much fun doing something and you look at each day and that you're able to do that as this gift that I think he kind of thinks he stole because so many men didn't come home from World War II, you can't but approach it with, I want to be here. I want to play more. I want to be there in the important moments. I want to be there for my teammates. I think being going through a war and serving with other men, you know, people liken sports to war all the time. It's not the same, but the camaraderie feels similar. And I think he felt that obligation to his teammates to show up every day as well. So you mentioned her briefly, but I also wanted to ask about Carmen, who was your grandma, Mm, mm -hmm. who I understand was sort of a legend in her own right. So tell us a little bit about her. She was pretty awesome. She grew up on a farm in a place called Howes Mill, Missouri. It's like a tiny little dot on the map, like two hours south and west of St. Louis. And she and one of her sisters went to the city during World War II, and they were working in like a munitions factory or something. But she was teaching dance classes at an Arthur Murray, and she was like, had a side hustle winning bicycle races, (laughs) whatever. But she uh, (laughs) she ended up waiting tables at a restaurant on the hill in St. Louis. The hill was the Italian section of St. Louis where Grandpa Yogi grew up. 
And the restaurant she was waiting tables in was called Biggie's. And it's the restaurant about which grandpa said the famous yogiism, nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Grandpa saw Grammy walking in and out of the restaurant and he thought she was cute. So he dragged his buddy, Joe Graziola, who grew up across the street from him and also ended up in the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's the craziest story ever. (laughs) Dragged him in there to sit at the bar and they couldn't afford to eat there. So they would drink glasses of water. And Joe would say, Yogi, I'm hungry. Can we get out of here? I want to go get something to eat. I can't. Let's go. (laughs) And grandpa would say, Joe, I just want to look at her. So Grammy had uh, grandpa wrapped around her finger from the very, very beginning. But I always say she was just awesome. Like she could do the New York Times crossword puzzle in like two seconds flat. And she had been like a, a dancer when she was younger. And I remember her like at 85 years old doing high kicks in the kitchen to, you know, keep her hips loose. <laughs> she was awesome. She was so much fun. And honestly, grandpa would not have gotten one foot out the door without her. She was incredible. I feel like Kelly's going to be doing high kicks in the kitchen when he's 85. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely yeah. like, I could see you doing that. Dude, I'm going to channel my inner yogi. Do you remember them talking about or how your parents talked about sort of the pressure and the notoriety. Was that a conversation? Because now there's, we're so meta about mindset and preparation and we've commoditized and fetishized and organized sports so much and it's divided and I have all, I feel like some of the best athletes a generation ago, two generations ago, stumbled into these things and may or may not have been consciously aware of their process. Do you feel like, I mean, certainly coming through PTSD, trauma, being able to enact the change and the the gratitude and practice. And I think that was probably very healing for your grandfather at the same time. But mm-hmm. do you think he was aware of his process or was he just so himself and so extraordinary that he just did the right things at the right time for the right reason because he was a perfect product in that moment? I think it's a little bit of both with him. Grandpa was an exceptional human being. When I think back about it and I think about him often, he's very much in my head all the time. It's a really high bar. And when you screw up or you do something that may not have been the right thing, like I very often think, wow, like that's not what grandpa would have done. And it's a tough bar to live up to. He was a special human being. But I remember talking to him about, you know, when I started playing softball and was in games that mattered or, and we would like lose a game or you would, and you'd come home and be, you know, complaining about some call that the umpire made or something that the other team did. And he would be like, yo, like, forget about what just happened. You need to figure out what you personally did wrong so you can do it better tomorrow. If you're still talking about yesterday, when you get to the ballpark tomorrow, that's not good. You're not going to be able to play. So he was super able to consciously leave whatever had happened the day before at the ballpark and come home. And I think he was aware of that. But I think it also goes back to that perspective. Like when you've been through a war, a loss is not the worst thing in the world. And he was also very self-aware. You know, I didn't play well today. I didn't hit when we had two men on base in the third inning. And he wasn't looking to pass the buck to other people. And when you kind of take that on yourself and, and, okay, this is what I need to do tomorrow to be better, that was the process, right? It was looking at himself, looking at what the team did, figuring out what he needed to move forward and actually moving forward. So many people harp on what they didn't do. And he was the most self-confident person on the planet too. Like there was no failure on the field that made him think that he couldn't do it better tomorrow. I remember my uncle Dale tells this great story about- Love this. Yeah. Do you know where I'm going with this? About- No. 
So Dale tells the story. Michael Dale played for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He was a shortstop, one of the better shortstops in the National League in the early 80s before he screwed up. That's also in the movie. But um, he was talking to his dad, to grandpa, and he says, Dad, what did you think about with the bases loaded? And grandpa turned it back on him. Well, what do you think about? And he's like, well, I think about, you know, try to put the ball into play. Don't hit a pop fly. Don't swing at a bad pitch. All these things, this list of stuff that Dale had going on in his head. And he said, so what did you think about, Dad? And Grandpa was like, I can't believe you thought about all that. All I thought about was that the pitcher was in trouble. (laughs) There was never a a thought in his mind that he wasn't going to hit the ball and that the pressure wasn't on the pitcher and not on him. It was just this just amazing perspective. And he always thought that he could deliver. And, you know, when you believe you can deliver, you deliver a lot more often than you do if you don't believe you can deliver. Did he talk about his, you're coming to San Francisco, you're at the Mill Valley Film Festival, we're coming, I can't wait to see this. There's so much there. Two questions I have for you is, do you remember him talking about his parents? Because, you know, we're such a product of, I mean, the generations apart from us, it's almost hard to conceive of the world that they lived in, World War I, the Great Depression. Do you remember him being influenced by parents first? That's the first question. The second one is, I can't wait to hear what you say surprised you about really learning about your grandfather. So his parents came over from Italy. Grandpa had three older brothers, Uncle Mike, Uncle John, and Uncle Tony. They were all born in Italy. And Grandpa was the first of the boys to be born here. And then he had a younger sister, Josie. And everybody was working to help support their family. They were super poor as Italian immigrants living on the hill in St. Louis. His his father worked in the brickyards. And grandpa had to quit school in the eighth grade to go to work to help put food on the table. Grandpa will tell you that all three of his older brothers were better baseball players than he was. And great grandpa Pietro, his father just thought baseball was nonsense, that why are you wasting time playing this game? Go to work and make some money, right? And I think he got a tremendous amount of work ethic from his parents, but this also goes back to the gratitude too. Mm -hmm. He talks about how all of his older brothers were better than he was, but when it got down to grandpa, they kind of ganged up on my great-grandfather and said, one of us should have a chance to make it to the big leagues, let him try. And they convinced great grandpa Pietro to let grandpa play baseball. And at that point, uncle Mike and uncle Tony decided to switch grandpa Yogi. He was a natural right-handed hitter and they switched him around to being a lefty. (laughs) Uh, They thought that he'd have a better chance of making the big leagues as a left-handed hitting catcher. And how old was he when he switched? He was 10 when they switched him. (laughs) But you know that Yogi Berra is not Yogi Berra if he's hitting right-handed. There's no way. Amazing. And, you know, when it goes back to what he learned from his family, it contributes to that gratitude because he wouldn't have been where he was if his brothers hadn't gone to bat for him. Nice little pun there. And he was really grateful for that opportunity because his brothers hadn't gotten that opportunity. And just a little bit more about the lefty righty thing. Grandpa said he was amphibious. He was obviously ambidextrous. (laughs) he, He was a natural righty. He hit lefty and threw righty in the big leagues. When he played golf, it was the opposite. He played golf right-handed, but he putt left-handed and carried a left-handed eight iron. So if you ever had a bad shot behind a tree, he could turn around and just hit the other way. 
And he was one of these people like <laughs> he'd be cutting his steak with his right hand and then stop mid sentence and switch hands and go cut his steak with the other hand. Like I would impale myself if I tried to cut my steak with my left hand. He very much could do anything with either hand. It's very interesting. How, do you think that that was like a trained skill just because he started? No, he hitting, was, he's a mutant and yeah, he, I mean, he's a mutant, but yeah, I mean, he's a mutant and an amphibian, apparently. <laughs> I love that. I love amphibian. I love that your uncles, your great uncles knew it would be a competitive advantage. Oh yeah. And they took advantage of this window of this young, talented kid who's like, no, 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 we're, we know how to, how to tweak the game, play the game, put yeah, you into so the best progressive. position. It's so progressive. So I just want to say that it seems like he had the perfect mix of the phrase we use now is growth mindset. He had the perfect yeah. mix of confidence and growth mindset, right? And it seems like those two things together were sort of his secret weapon. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And even like you see it in like just the way he carried himself as a human, like not on the baseball field. So many people, this is in the movie quite a bit. He was very underestimated. He was a tiny, he was five foot eight, he didn't, he was kind of stocky and thick. And they said he didn't look like a ball player. He looked like a gorilla. He looked like an ape. He looked like a fire hydrant. He was too ugly to be a Yankee. Who even says that? And what does that even mean? Okay. <laughs> but he was so able to just let that stuff roll off his back. He was like, his answer was, well, I never saw anyone hit with his face. So it's just, I don't know. He was just able to move through the world, marching to the beat of his drum. Like he didn't care what anybody else said. We have a few friends who are icons and you're around them and the way they operate in the world is inspiring. And it's, it's so like, we always come away charged from hanging out with just, just our, you know, we have some superstar friends growing up with this person who is just an example, but also, you know, he's an, actually an, an exceptional person. I think we all have those people in our families, whether they were superstars or not in the in baseball, but that is not the same thing as deep diving into a life to make a documentary where you really had a chance to sort of strip down grandfather, strip down, you know, Yogi as legend. What surprised you or even humanized your grandfather in a way that you couldn't have if you weren't a, a journalist athlete yeah, looking and, at this in a different and way? making this documentary. Yeah. I just think it's amazing. And this is not unique to him. This is all the members of that greatest generation. And it's why we call them that, right? Like he was able to accomplish so much in his time on earth. And it kind of just makes you feel <laughs> inadequate, right? <laughs> like, what are you doing with your life? He, it's like he lived five lives in the time it took everybody to live in what, what we do in one life. And I think when I got involved with the documentary, I came to the project with the idea that I just wanted to help Sean Mullen, our director. Sean is a West Point graduate and army veteran. He played rugby at West Point and he was the perfect person to do this project because as an athlete and a veteran, he just brought a great perspective. He felt like he kind of understood grandpa. Grandpa would have loved Sean. I just wanted to help Sean, who is a Hollywood person, get in touch with as many of the baseball people as I could think of who had seen grandpa play or played with him so they could really give perspective on, you know, grandpa as a player, his impact on the Yankees, how he made other players around him better because he, that was a gift of his as a catcher, elevating pitchers and, and getting them to bring their best every day. And, you know, obviously the baseball stuff is tremendous, but what always surprises me, even though I know this happens and it will never cease to surprise me, humble me and bring tears to my eyes. I'm going to probably cry when I tell you this. 
you hear people talk and all the people who are interviewed in the doc and just like people I meet in parking garages and at restaurants and they tell me, oh my God, Yogi was your grandfather. I loved him so much. My father loved him and made sure he watched all the Yankee games. Or I grew up in Georgia and we didn't get any other team on the radio and I listened to him on the radio and I fell in love with your grandfather. And they mean the word love in the same sense of it as when I say I loved my grandfather. They loved him. And it is absolutely crazy to realize someone who was just such a normal grandpa to you had that kind of effect on people he never even met. Like, that is astonishing. Like, what is that gift that allows him to reach people like that? It's just absolutely fascinating to me. And I still can't really wrap my brain around it. That's cool. It's mind blowing. One of the things I wanted to ask about, and I know this documentary is more about his athletic career, but, you know, he did go on to appear in so many commercials and be such a media person. And I have to think he that was like the first. Yeah, that was that's what I was going to ask. I mean, he yeah. has to have been one of the first athletes to move into that role. And did he also bring that same like joy and growth mindset to that part of his life? Did he enjoy that? Or was that sort of something that he fell into? And then, you know, it was a way to make money. I mean, you know, tell us a little bit about what that whole phase of his life was like. And and, you know, now we don't think twice about the fact that there's celebrity athlete endorsements for literally everything that, you know, we buy and purchase. But I think he had to have been the first and only one for a really long time. Yeah, there were some folks I'm trying to think Joe DiMaggio did something maybe for cigarettes or, or something. But, you know, Grandpa did have a lot of endorsements as he started getting into like the late 50s. And, you know, one of the big ones was YooHoo. He and Mickey Mandel became pitchmen for YooHoo in the late 50s. And actually, I'm going to tell this story really quick because it's one of my favorites. People always ask me about my favorite yogiisms. And this is one that not a lot of people have heard. In the late 50s, there's a press conference introducing Grandpa and Mickey as pitchmen for YooHoo. And there's a female reporter in the front row and grandpa remembered the story and would tell me because I also was a female reporter and there weren't a lot of female reporters in the 50s. So he always remembered this. And she raised her hand and said, excuse me, is that hyphenated? Meaning you who the word you who? And he said, lady, it ain't even carbonated. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. <laughs> but um, he went on to make a lot of these commercials and they kind of made fun of him. The you who one, there was a big poster and billboard that said me for you who, which is very grammatically incorrect and kind of fell into this like kind of stereotype of grandpa not being very smart and the yogisms, which are really all genius if you think about them and distill them to their base parts. They can sometimes appear silly on the surface. And if you go into that, like you can maybe not think he was the smartest person, but he really was very smart. And I, I don't want people to think that I'm making the case that he was like taken advantage of or was an unwitting participant in this because he certainly did sign on to do those commercials. And he had a lot of fun doing them. He had fun doing everything that he did. But I think, you know, back then, grandpa's best year in the big leagues, he made $60,000. Most years he was making 45 or 50, yeah. which was a good living back then, but it's the equivalent to about 500,000 today, which is a good living, but it's not 30 million like these guys are making. And he had three children and he was sending money home to his family in St. Louis. And he had been raised, you know, very poor, struggling to make ends meet. And I think he understood the importance of saving and helping to support your family. And that, I think, was part of what drove him to do the commercials. 
and he did it, I think later in his life, I think he really did just have fun doing them. It gave him, you know, something to do. He loved people and doing the commercials opened a whole new world of people for him. But yeah, he definitely became, he really was one of those first iconic athlete pitchmen. You know, you said he was doing the commercials all the way up until 2008, which wasn't that long ago. How old was he yeah. at that time? In 2008, let's see, in 50, he was 83. I feel like he made the Aflac commercial. If people haven't seen the Aflac commercial with Grandpa Yogi, give that a Google. It's pretty hysterical. Okay, well, yeah, we'll link it in this episode for sure. He made that one when he was about 85. And Ron Guidry tells this, Ron Guidry's a, a famous pitcher from the Yankees. And he actually wrote a book called Driving Mr. Yogi. He became grandpa's de facto chauffeur at spring training. So Ronnie actually dropped grandpa off at the airport in Tampa when he was going to make that commercial and picked him up on the return trip. And Ron tells this great story where grandpa jumps into the, the passenger seat on the way back and he says, you know, Gator, the duck don't talk. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very funny. You're a... Uh... You know, one of the things I think that is people won't even appreciate is you end up quoting a person can quote your grandfather without even knowing it. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking of a gigantic mega hit song by Lenny Kravitz, Ain't It Over Till It's Over. Yep. That's not quoting someone else. That is actually quoting your grandfather who coined that term. Absolutely. And there's some of this in the documentary. He was literally quoted by every American president since like Gerald Ford. In my family and amongst my friends, we often say that Jesus and Shakespeare were probably the two most quoted men in the history of the world until Grandpa Yogi came along. <laughs> and now they, they've lost a lot of ground, those two. Okay. Well, I have to ask, I know you've said a few of them, but I mean, do you have a favorite yogiism? I mean, you've hit on a few, but what's your number one? My favorites are the more existential ones. The future ain't what it used to be. And if the world were perfect, it wouldn't be. Those are my two favorites for sure. But there's another famous one, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And that one was actually, he was giving directions to his house here in Montclair, which is like a mile and a half from where I'm sitting right now. And there's a, you turn up this road and there's a split, a Y, and both sides of the fork go to his street. So he said, when you come to the fork, take it, you get to the top, you make a left. Either way, it didn't matter, it would get to his house. <laughs> and it makes perfect sense if you see what the road looked like. But that one has become kind of a euphemism in my family for like, get off your butt and get moving. Like when you're laying in bed, hitting the snooze button, it's like, take the fork, get out of bed, like get going. So I like that one a lot as well, because it's practical. There's so many good ones. And I love when I hear people, you know, I have a Google alert set in my Gmail, you know, and I get these stories where people quote him about, you know, the oil market or the economy or something they use. <laughs> like really obscure stuff. Yeah. It's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. That's a really common one that they use with like elections or they use it ain't over till it's over all the time, especially in politics, that kind of thing. But I'm just amazed at how many people quote them all the time. And sometimes they attribute and sometimes they don't. But it's just kind of, it is who, it's amazing how he kind of took over the American lexicon. Yeah, without You've been a journalist and been working in media, but if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time you've really worked on a documentary like this at this scale. Yeah, 100%. What has it been like? What's the experience been like? And what have you learned? And will you do it again? <laughs> I keep saying I am not a filmmaker. When it comes down to it, I am just 
a kid who loves her grandpa and wants people to remember what he did on this earth, right? Like I want a new generation of people to know who he is, understand what kind of human he was and use that to live their lives in a little bit of a better way, right? I'm not a filmmaker. The fact that I got involved with this and Sean, the director, embraced me and allowed me to really be a part of the process of making this film was a real gift. I don't know that I'm going to make more going forward. (laughs) I mean, sure, if you want my help, I'll help you. But like, I don't know that there's another thing I want to make a movie about. We'll see. Do you feel like it was difficult to confront your grandfather's raging drug abuse and sexual... Wait, wait, wait. It turns out none of that exists. Like this movie is the right time at the right place and really feels like... I have watched the preview now 10 times and it makes me feel nostalgic. It makes me feel proud. It makes me feel like, oh, I have this link because I know you to this incredible human being. Like, I can't wait for people to get their hands on this thing. What has been, you're starting to show it around and shop it around. It has to make baseball proud. It has to. Yes. Yeah, I really think so. And we premiered it at the Tribeca Film Festival last year. We had six showings at Tribeca and people really reacted to it. What's cool about it also is even if you're not a baseball fan, you know, it talks about him as a first generation Italian immigrant. Yeah. It talks about him as a D-Day veteran. It talks about his 65 year beautiful love affair with my Grammy Carmen. It talks about him as a father to his three sons. It talks to him as, you know, and a, and a lot of the players in the late 40s and 50s actually sort of became these unwitting civil rights activists, not because they were trying to make a point, but because they did the right thing by embracing and welcoming black players into baseball. Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947. That is 15, 18 years ahead of the civil rights movement in this country. And that doesn't happen without the acceptance of folks like my grandfather and Ted Williams and Pee Wee Reese, who stood up and embraced them and didn't say no. So there's that. It's like a civil rights story. There's so much in this movie that people who are not baseball fans can identify with. And so I don't want people to not go see it if they say they don't like baseball. Like this is a human story and it's really an inspiring story. And then, so Tribeca, everything went great. And then we went to the Nantucket Film Festival and Sean, our director was like, do you want to come with me? And I'm like, Sean, Nantucket, Massachusetts? We're showing this on an island of Red Sox fans? Like, it seems like they might (laughs) like- like, We're going to die. Bad idea. At us. Like, why are we doing this? And it ended up being the most lovely experience. (laughs) There was a review that came out after the Nantucket Film Festival that said, the end of the film, the closing credits were met with the sound of grown men weeping. <laughs> and it is. It makes people so nostalgic, you know, for their dads and their grandparents and for like America as like a kinder, simpler, gentler place. Like we're not always in that place now. And the movie kind of makes you feel that whether you're a baseball fan or not. I really hope people go see it. (laughs) Where can people find out, watch the preview right now, kind of just get on board because- See see the schedule, like when's it going to be released? I grew up in Europe. I played a little t-ball and then I skipped baseball entirely. And I have to tell you, it's the reason I care about baseball is I have personal connections to baseball and coaches we work with and teams we work with, but that's my in. And I have to say that I love baseball and I can't wait to watch this through your eyes and through the lens of of this movie. 
So the film opens in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, and I don't know why I always have a hard time remembering the three states, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and Los Angeles on May the 12th. And then on May the 19th, it opens in Philadelphia, DC, Dallas, San Francisco, Chicago, a whole bunch of other cities. And then every week thereafter, through the end of May and June, it's going to open in more cities in the country. So it is very definitely coming soon to a theater near you. You can look at itain'tovermovie.com for the schedules. If you're so inclined, you could follow me on Twitter. I tweet all the info, anything, probably too much info, anything everyone needs. And, you know, people, some guy messaged me this morning, where will it be in Connecticut? And I sent him the list of theaters in Connecticut. So I am at your service if you need me. <laughs> and that's at Lindsay Barra. Yep, at Lindsay Barra, L-A-N-D-S-A-Y. Very easy to find. We can't wait. And I will also say for those people who are like Kelly and watch previews on their Apple TV, like it's their job in life, it's also sitting there as well. And that's where we've watched it. So yeah, and I agree. Even just watching the preview, it's clearly an amazing human interest story and baseball is a feature, but you know, you do not need to be a baseball lover to like this. So go check it out, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, Lindsay Barra, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for having me, really. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it!